This episode of The Sit Down is powered by Thrive Fantasy. The leaves are rustling, the temperatures are lowering, and football is here. I love gambling, I love fantasy, and I know a lot of you do too. Here at The Sit Down, we feel uh, that our subject matter and gambling go hand in hand. There's a new app out there, though, that can get you involved in not only fantasy, but gambling too. Let me introduce you to Thrive Fantasy, the newest in prop-style gambling fantasy. Right now, by going to thrivefantasy.com or downloading the app wherever you get your apps, you can join for real cash prizes uh, in multiple different sports, whether it's football, the NBA, when that's in season, soccer, or even cricket. You can get involved now by picking fantasy-style props each week, and whoever gets the most right wins the cash prizes. They have entry fees from $5 all the way up to $10,000. Be like me. Go to Thrive Fantasy and get in the game today. Week one, they had $100,000 in prizes. And as I said, they have weekly prizes every single week. You got Monday night games. You got Thursday night games. You got Saturday games. You got Sunday games. All sorts of great contests. Now, the Jacksonville Jaguars are official sponsors of Thrive Fantasy. The LA Chargers are official sponsors of Thrive Fantasy. And so is the sit-down podcast. So be like me. And go get involved right now with Thrive Fantasy. Get the app wherever you get your apps. Welcome to The Sit Down, a mafia history podcast. Here's your host, Jeff Nadu. What's up, everybody, and welcome into another edition of The Sit Down, a Mafia History Podcast. I hope you're having a great day wherever you are. We are back with another week, another show, and football, fall, everything is in full force. We are closer and closer to the holiday season. A lot going on right now, but another week and another big show. We were off last week. Obviously, we were here, but we had a special episode, did a great episode on The Sopranos, just kind of a reliving of it. Uh, I think people enjoyed it, got some good uh, chatter about it, but we have a huge show today, possibly our biggest episode yet. We're going to talk about Charlie Lucky Luciano, one of the, well, I don't think one of, probably the most instrumental individual in the history of the American Mafia. Um, This is a guy that really is the face of the mob in this country. And when you're talking about Mount Rushmore's, when you're talking about the Capo do Tutti Capi, if you will. There were some big ones. Carla Gambino, Vincent Giganti, Tony Accardo, all these different guys. But Lucky Luciano was the creator of all this. And we've waited to do this show, and it's time to do it. We're going to do it today. So sit back, relax. It's going to be a great episode. Let's bring in our co-host. We didn't have him on last week, but he's back. Blackjack Fletcher, our co-host. How you doing? Good to hear from you. How's everything going? It's fantastic, Jeff. Good to be back. Uh, this is... This is, I think, the biggest episode we've done so far. Yeah, I think in terms of who we're doing, um, it's it, it's a gigantic one, and it is, you know, really again the face of the American mob. You know, it's interesting because people like, and we've talked about this from a popularity standpoint. You hear more about Luci or uh, Al Capone or John Gotti, but you know, it's funny because those two had the shortest runs, uh, really 
ever as boss. I mean, we know Al Capone wasn't necessarily in the mafia, uh, but he has a short uh, kind of a succession as kind of the, one of the leaders of the mob. And, you know, John Gotti was only in power for what, you know, five to seven years. So, you know, I think when we look back on the birth of the American mob, it came from Luciano and he was really someone that recognized quickly that he could manipulate people. He could get them to kind of get into his fear and then, kind of use them and take over what they were doing. And, and obviously he did that throughout, you know, his late twenties, even after prohibition. And, you know, he was just a, a smart guy. He, he was rich, powerful, but he was also really smart and had a really fascinating life. So I'm excited about doing this. Um, and again, I think a lot of people don't know a ton about like Luciano Blackjack. Yeah. I mean, he's one of those guys that has such a, a lot going on in his life and there's so many different facets to it that I think people have like little bits and pieces, but, you know, even doing a little bit of research for this episode, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't know. So, I mean, I, I think we're going to, I think we're going to give a lot of good information here. You know, and this is something that um, has kind of been a point of contention recently with some people that follow the show. And, you know, I think some people took a little offense to the episode that we did on Gravano and look, I relate that to this episode for one reason. You know, Blackjack, as we've talked about time and time again, okay, our job on this show is to give you the the closest thing to fact as you're going to get. Now, a lot of the things we're going to talk about are not our opinions. But again, you and I both are very much in belief that we do not agree with people that inform on people. We just don't. And, you know, when it came to the Gravano episode, like there were a lot of things that we had to talk about that, weren't pleasant to talk about. I don't agree with the things that were done, but you know, at any rate, we have to talk about it. There's going to be stuff in this episode. Look, I'm going to tell you right now, for as big as a gangster as Lucky was, for as powerful and as rich as he was, I still wonder why people don't talk about his informing. I mean, he was a rat and did it multiple times. Now, back then, being a rat never really kind of, I think, got to where it would be if you did it in the 70s or the 80s but blackjack there's a lot that you'll realize and a lot of people don't know early in lucky luciano's life you know his early 20s he was an informant pretty quickly yeah yeah he was and i mean even even later in life you know i wouldn't call it informing but you know even into world war ii he was cooperating with the government yeah. um, so i mean there was there was a lot going on there and listen people can have their beefs with with us doing episodes on these guys but the bottom line is, Jeff, if we were doing a podcast about baseball in the 1990s, I don't like steroids, but you'd have yeah. to talk about Mark McGuire, right? I mean, like, you can't tell the whole story without including these people. Yeah, and the truth is, like, I don't, we don't live in a fantasy world where we're not, like, I don't, anyone that we talk about, look, do I have, some of the people we talk about, am I um, intrigued by, do I find them to be, you know, look, would I want it? Would I have wanted to hang out with Tony Salerno? Absolutely. Um, do, do I like these people? I don't know them. I'm not going to say I like them or not, but I definitely give points to people that do not become informants. And look, I know there are people that are going to make excuses for these people, but people like Sammy Ravano are not people you should be making excuses for. And oh. so again, I know people don't want to hear it, but again, we try to add in a little bit of our own opinion. Now, most of the show is fact and most of this is very professional, but some, there are some people that we talk about that are awful people, particularly a guy like Anthony Casso, person like Kabani Savage. These are terrible people. These are some of the worst criminals in the history of our country. And, 
you know, we're not going to just sit here and, and not offer our real opinion. And there could be stuff today that you're going to hear that you, you didn't know or you're surprised by. And, you know, our job generally, we're not reporters. We're not, we don't work for any newspaper, but you know, we look at ourselves as, as storytellers in a way. And, um, you know, sometimes there's going to be things that we talk about that aren't easy to talk about, but we have to do it. So uh, let's get into Salvatore Lucky Luciano. And I want to say something right from the beginning. There's a lot of question on how Lucky got his name, right? And a lot of times you'll hear the story that he was um, slashed and, and someone called him Lucky for escaping. But look, the truth of the matter, Blackjack, is Lucky earned his nickname when he was a kid um, because a lot of the kids that he grew up around were Jewish, Russian Jews. Uh, they cannot pronounce Lukanya, um, so they would call him Lucky. Um, and that's kind of how the Lucky name started. Um, he didn't get it because he was slashed and he was lucky to be alive. It, it didn't come from that. Um, now, again, this, a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about happened many, many years ago, over a hundred years ago uh, in certain aspects. So there are certain instances where there's not a ton of information on it, but we really try to dive deep. I've got some good stuff on some of the things that, that lucky kind of encountered when he went to prison and that sort of thing. So let's get into it here on the show. Uh, Lucky Luciano on the sit-down. Salvatore Lucania was born November 23rd, 1897 in Larcara Fridi, which is in Sicily. Uh, Larcara Fridi is a small area uh, just south of Palermo. And Lucky's father was, in all respect, a very good guy. He had a regular job. He was not connected with the mafia at all. He worked in a mine and Lucky would have four brothers and sisters, two sisters, two brothers. His brother's names were Bartholomew and Giuseppe, and his sisters were called Filippa and Conchetta. Um, now, throughout Lucky's early life as an infant and, and small child, his father Antonio's dream was to move his family to America. He knew that moving the Lucanias there would only mean good for him and his wife, but also for his children. He was a good man. And he believed that, you know, America was the path to, to success and to, to great things. And Lucky would talk years later about his father would keep a jar under his bed where he would just kind of try to save as much money as he could. And eventually he, and they put enough money together to, to come over and, a lot of people believe that his mother was given money by a family member, and that's what allowed them to come over. Um, but all in all, Blackjack, in Italy, it was a tough place to live at the time. And, you know, his father believed that the U.S. was paved with gold. Yeah, I mean, you have to think about the time here, too, right? You're talking about the late 1800s, early 1900s. Industrialization is really big in America. Cities are starting to really become uh, a thing in this country and yeah, this is a prime time for immigration uh, from Europe over to the United States. I mean, economically, this was the land of opportunity at that point. So in 1906, late 1906, the Lucanias pick up Lucky seven years old, or sorry, not seven years, he's nine years old, and they move to America. Now, upon arriving to Ellis Island, Lucky is diagnosed with smallpox which would pockmark his face. If you've ever seen pictures of Lucky Luciano, he had a rough face. Um, some of his, uh, that was from some of his affliction that he had when he was a child. So um, it wasn't easy coming over, but they made it over. 
Um, they settled in the Lower East Side, which at the time was uh, crime ridden. It was packed. I mean, there were tons of people that lived in one small area. The Lucianos uh, or Lucanias would settle uh, at 265 East 10th Street, which would be between Avenue A and First Avenue. If you've ever been to the East Village, that's where it is today. Um, and they would live in a very crowded tenement. Um, Lucky would go to PS 19. And look, really throughout his early childhood, he was a behavioral issue, as we've talked about time and time and time again with a lot of these guys. Um, Lucky would be cutting school. He was constantly pickpocketing, robbing people, getting in fights, loaning classmates money, and really just kind of being a bully around the neighborhood. Um, and he would, at one point when he was in school, he was extorting pennies from his uh, classmates. Um, he realized that, you know, from an early age that leading by force and being in the streets was probably the way he could make money. He saw a lot of the people around him. Again, when you're a young child and you grew up in poverty and you're around people and you see everybody busting their ass like his father and all these different guys, and they're not making shit. They live in a squatty tenement. Then you look down the street and you see the guys in the suits. They're making all the money. A young boy is surely drawn to that. We see that today in some of the urban areas in our country where, you know, wh why get a job or not even have the ability to get a job? Why not just go down and, and sell uh, wet on the corner or something? Uh, it's a lot easier. And, you know, Lucky realized quickly that the streets were the way for him to make money. And this is where he would ultimately meet his best friend, Meyer Lansky, which we'll talk about in a second. In 1911, Blackjack at 14, the New York Board of Education would sentence uh, a young Lucky Luciano to truancy school after he just wasn't showing up to school. He would later that year drop out and he would get a job. But his father and mother quickly realized, I think, Blackjack, they had a rule problem on their hands in young Lucky. But what could you blame? The kid wanted money. And obviously, as a young kid in the ghetto, that's how you make it. Yeah, I mean, listen, as you said, it, this is a, a story that hasn't changed all that much over time, right? I mean, when you're in an environment where there's no money and you see people, you know, scratching and clawing to make ends meet, you're going to try to find whatever way you can to make it. And let's be honest, for a 14-year-old with a very limited education, he's an immigrant, and some behavioral issues, uh, there's not too many legitimate options out there. Yeah, you know, Lucky would talk years later that it wasn't easy to go to American school and not know a goddamn word of English. In my whole life, that was the worst time I'd ever experienced the first couple of years in the different P, uh, public school systems in the United States. It was probably really tough for him. And, you know, I think the only people that he connected with, obviously, were you know, fellow young immigrant children and, you know, some of the other nationalities that were in the area at that time. Um, so by 1911, Lucky was out of school and he goes to get a job. And you know, I think that's what he realized. He was probably upsetting his father. He was upsetting his family. And he decides to go get a job. He gets a job uh, working for a hat company where he was delivering hats and alongside these delivery routes. But as usual, he realized quickly that um, he could make some more money on the streets and he began experimenting, selling heroin on the route. Um, and he would always be sure that he didn't have the heroin on him. He would leave them in the hat uh, bag and he would kind of as he was delivering, he was setting up scores and drug deals and stuff. He was also doing a lot of gambling. And there was one a legend that 
he was only making five to seven dollars a week uh, delivering hats. Um, but in one dice game, he had made over two hundred and forty dollars in just one game. And that's when he realized I'm done with regular jobs. I'm out. Uh, the the hat company that I work for uh, is, is over uh, and I'm going to dedicate myself to crime. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? Because obviously the $240 score in a dice game is a nice one in, in 1906 or whatever it is. Um, but I mean, the job delivering hats for five seven dollars a week, I don't know, Jeff, that doesn't seem like terrible money for a 14-year-old in 1906. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, you know, in 1906, $200 is worth about $28,000 today. There you go. I mean, that's... So, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> or, I'm wait. I'm. I think I'm looking at the wrong. I'm sorry. So today, two hundred dollars from nine to six is a relative income worth of twenty eight thousand three hundred eighty four dollars. Um, I don't know what relative worth means, but whatever. It, it's a lot of money. Let's just say that it is a lot of money. It um, is, uh, it, it's a lot more. If I get two hundred forty dollars today in a dice game, I'd be happy. Oh sure, yeah, I, that's exactly right. Uh, so yeah, um, again, I get it. Five seven dollars not bad for a young kid, but. You ain't going to get rich uh, uh, making five to seven dollars a week. But again, good money. But um, there's a lot more money if you just uh, you know, get into the streets. The lure of the streets, Blackjack, is just uh, too much. You know, interestingly enough, years into his career, um, even into his 30s, he would still use 265 East 10th Street as his address, uh, interestingly enough. So that was, that was his home for, for many years, and his parents would live there until the 30s. By 18, uh, Blackjack, uh, Lucky Luciano would be arrested for heroin possession, and this would be his first jail stint. He would get a year in prison, uh, and his parents are absolutely sickened that they didn't come to this country um, and they didn't save and 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 rest, you know, worry about peril along the seven seas to to have their son go to prison. This is not what I think Antonio Lucania wanted for his son, uh, and I think at times he even try to discipline his son by beating him and things like that. But it, it never worked, um, sadly enough. And, and, and then you look back and it's, it's all sad because all these young parents, you know, they come to the Americas with the chance of obviously making a better life for their kid, but they couldn't do it. Uh, Lucky would get out six months later. And this is when he would join the Five Points Gang. And we talked about the Five Points Gang and just how powerful they were in the early 20th century in New York. Um, they were created by a guy called Paul Kelly, um, and he would make them into one of the more prominent criminal organizations, not only in New York, but in the country. Uh, and we've talked about when we did the Al Capone episode, Al Capone came up with five points. Johnny Torrey came up with five points and Lucky Luciano did as well. And we know, Black Chick, that the rise to power for them really worked through their success with Tammany Hall. They really obviously worked as muscle in stuffing ballot boxes, threatening voters, falsifying voter lists. They kind of aided the political machine that was the Democratic Party who controlled Tammany Hall and really kind of made New York City run. So they had a lot of connections in the governments. And this, again, was another way Lucky was able to connect with the right people. He was becoming powerful really quick. Um, and, you know, to get powerful, Joining with a group called the Five Points Gang was the best idea because they were the prominent criminal organization in really the country, frankly. Yeah, I mean, as you said, the connection to Tammany Hall is one that can't be overstated, right? Because uh, as you said, Tammany Hall is, is notorious for its, you know, 
corruption during this time period in New York City. And the Five Points Gang was essentially the enforcement arm of Tammany Hall. So uh, they had a great deal of access to power during this time period. Now, obviously, during this time, Lucky was um, moving around in all sorts of other uh, petty crime and or vice. He was learning uh, the pimping trade, that sort of thing. And he would also connect with an individual named Meyer Lansky. They would become friends and they would have a long relationship. They would really be friends to the end. And it was interesting because a lot of people that, that knew them back then talked that they had a bond that was really bigger than brothers, really. Um, and it's interesting because historians would talk about they had not only a brother-like relationship, they almost had like a, a lover type of relationship. They could almost uh, finish each other's sentences. They knew uh, what the others was thinking. They, they had a, a, a deep bond. And that would also go in with Benjamin Bugsy Siegel as well. And they almost created a little triumvirate, if you will. And they would get rich in the 20s because of it. Obviously, as we know, in 1920 and early 1920, uh, the Volstead Act would take effect and prohibition would last until 1933. And as we know, that would prohibit the manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcohol. And this would obviously create a black market for alcohol because, as we know, um, whether it was the drug trade, whether it was gambling, um, all legal activities are going to be done and someone's going to do it this time for prohibition. This would create what we now know as the mob. By 1920, Lucky was already powerful. He was only 23, but he was moving and making a lot of business throughout New York. He had already met young hoods like Vito Genovese and Frank Costello, uh, and he was using some of his five point gang connections to gain other business partners. He would meet a guy called Joe Masseria, who instantly took a liking to Lucky because Blackjack, back then, people like Masseria and Maranzano, who were the old uh, gang bosses of New York, they are from Sicily. And these young, young guys, they were only dealing with that were Sicilian. And Joe Masseria loved Lucky because he was from Sicily. These old guys were not doing business with other groups. They weren't even doing business with other Italians, only Sicilians. That's it. Uh, and Joe Masseria really liked Lucky early on. Lucky would also become very close with an individual called Arnold Rothstein. Um, and if you've ever seen um, Boardwalk Empire, and I, I would highly urge if you guys like this time period of the mob, whether it's Lucky, whether it's Meyer, whether it's Arnold Rothstein, I highly recommend Boardwalk Empire because they do some great portrayals of these guys in that time period, it's about the twenties in Atlantic city and on the East coast. And I always was fascinated by the Rothstein character in that show, because it was such a great portrayal of who Arnold Rothstein was. And Blackjack, obviously during prohibition, Arnold Rothstein was really on the East coast, the biggest bootlegger on the East coast. He'd come up as a gambler. Um, and it was said at one point that he fixed the, the 1919 world series, um, he was involved as well. I don't know if you know anything about the Traverse Stakes in 1921. Do you know anything about that, Blackjack? Not the particular race, though. No. Yeah, so Arnold Rothstein was a gambler, and he would conspire with a trainer to drive up the odds of a horse that he had. He would then go to that trainer who had another horse um, that was a really good three-year-old, and he would drive the horse's odds up because he was pumping up this other horse, uh, on the day of the race, though, um, he would be informed that the second favorite was off her feed just before post time without explanation. He just scratched the other good horse 
and he got all the great lines on his horse from the other horses, and he ended up making a ton of money off it. He was a shrewd gambler, but during Prohibition, Arnold Rothstein became the biggest bootlegger really in America at the time. Uh, and he loved these young guys like Lucky and Meyer because he was able to kind of school them in how to be businessmen and how to kind of take their operations to the next level. And in return, they learned how to bootleg. And he would ultimately finance a lot of Lucky's early bootlegging stuff. And him and Meyer went into not only that trade, but they would also go into the drug trade and start selling heroin and opium and all sorts of different things. Um, so Arnold Rothstein was really important, Blackjack, in the creation of a young Lucky Luciano. He took him from a street kid and a street gangster to a guy by the age of 25 that had already made a couple million dollars. Lucky was a rich man. And by Arnold Rothstein's end, Blackjack, in 1925, he would die in 1929. But in 1929, Arnold DeBrain Rothstein was worth about $10 million, which today would be about $150 million. It's good money. Yeah, he was very successful. He was an extremely successful guy. And I think I would credit him probably as to being why Lucky was able to move like a businessman. He was a street guy, but he was also a really great businessman. Uh, in 1923, Lucky Luciano would get caught up, though, um, in a sting where he would sell heroin to undercover agents. Now, this is where his cooperation would uh, come up. Um, now no one really bring this up, but lucky avoids jail time. And a lot of people wonder how he avoided jail time. So what happened was he sets off to the government that an individual was, and this is a guy that was a bootlegger as well. And it was a drug dealer, a guy called waxy Gordon. Um, he was a big in the New York criminal underworld in Philadelphia and all these different places. Lucky tipped off the police about Waxy Gordon and where his drug supply was, uh, and he was able to avoid prosecution and didn't end up serving any jail time on that 23 arrest. So, you know, Blackjack, I don't know where they call that, you know, where certain people live, but where I live, that sounds like an informant to me. He's definitely cooperating with law enforcement. I, I mean, if you want to try to draw lines of delineation, I guess you could you know, Waxy Gordon wasn't one of his guys per se, you know, so it's not like, you know, how Gravano flipped on Gotti or, you know, he wasn't flipping on one of his own guys. Also, I would say the difference, I would compare it kind of to Whitey Bulger in a way in that he gave up a bootlegger in exchange for continuing a multi-million dollar operation a year. So I certainly understand the trade. It isn't as if, I view it slightly differently than guys who just simply want to avoid jail time. Like he was allowed to continue to operate a, a gigantic organization, you know, by giving up this one small piece of the pie. But yeah, I mean, there's no way around it, Jeff. He certainly was cooperating with, with law enforcement. Yeah. And I look, Waxy's position had declined. He was very close with Arnold Rothstein and look, he had a beef with Meyer Lansky and, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think Lucky looked at it as kind of a business decision. Let's get him out of the way. Look, and this is what Lucky did. I mean, it was always about himself and he was willing to step over others. Um, and if he had to cooperate a little bit, he cooperated a little bit. It's that simple. Um, by the late 20s, um, Lucky Luciano was a very rich man. He was um, really worth a ton of money, frankly. By 1925, he was grossing over $12 million a year. 
And he was not only making money through bootlegging, but through gambling, prostitution, all sorts of things. Um, but once Rothstein dies, you know, obviously for the late 20s, we're starting to wind down prohibition. Obviously, in 33, it'd be repealed. But as we said, this is where Lucky really makes his foray into the mob, per se. Uh, he was aligned with Joe Masseria, who, again, was very high on Lucky due to his connections and being from Sicily. Um, but I think, in turn, Lucky was smart enough to realize that he was getting sick and tired of these old timers. As we talked about Lucky's entire career, he was willing to work with Jews. He was willing to work with other people. And he realized that if we all worked together, we could have a triumvirate, if you will, and all make money. Um, so what he kind of does is he goes to Masseria's rival, Salvatore Maranzano, and says, look, let me get rid of Masseria for you. You take over control. I'll take over his rackets and be your number two. Obviously, the power-hungry idiot that Maranzano is he's all about it little does he know that behind the scenes Lucky has created a group really of young guys including Frank Costello Meyer Lansky Vito Genovese Joe Adonis Joe Bonanno Carla Gambino uh, all these different guys and saying look we're going to consolidate everything we're all going to be one national syndicate um, and in turn I'll get rid of Maranzano and I'll take over and be the guy in 1929, Lucky would form a conference that was hosted in Atlantic City, um, where all sorts of gangsters, young and old, would attend, including Johnny Torrio, Al Capone, all these different guys. And that would be where they'd kind of set up, we're going to get rid of Maranzano. And obviously, Masseria as well. Um, but in October of 1929, a little bit before all this happens, Lucky's forced into a limo by, in, at gunpoint by three men. He was beaten, stabbed. Uh, and just kind of beat up and thrown in a warehouse in Staten Island. Now, a lot of people wonder who did that. It's kind of questioned on who ordered it. Was it Maranzano? Um, or was it the police? A lot of people believe it was the, was the police to try to get information about other gangsters. Um, but that would give him the scar on his face and also that droopy eye that he had. So you know, that was one where really had to take it uh, like a man. But you know, there's a lot of question on Blackjack who actually ordered that. Um, but that's not where he got the name Lucky. That, that's not where that happened. Lucky had his name uh, far before then. Um, so by 1931, the decision is made. Masseria and Maranzano are dead. Uh, on April 15th, 1931, Joe Masseria and Lucky and others are at a uh, place in Coney Island called Nueva Villa Tomorrow. It's a restaurant, kind of a card room, that kind of thing. They're playing cards. Lucky decides he's got to go take a leak. He gets up. And at that point, Bugsy Siegel, Joe Adonis, and Vito Genovese rush inside and kill Joe Masseria. Now, if you've ever looked up Joe Masseria, there's a terrific uh, death photo where there's like a card, a playing card, like right near his yep. body. It's, it's awesome. But a lot of questions on this. Albert Anastasia was not involved with this hit. A lot of people believe he was. That's not true. Um, Albert was actually at his lawyers that day, and that was uh, something that checked out in an alibi. You can look it up. Um, there's also an interesting story, Blackjack, that there was a guy, Ciro Terranova. He was the getaway driver, and there's a, a little uh, quirk that he was obviously a young guy at the time, and he was shaken up, and that Bugsy Siegel had to shove him out of the way because uh, he was too scared to drive. Um, so that's kind of a funny end to the story. But with 
Masseri out of the way, Maranzano takes over. He thinks he's the man. He creates uh, kind of the five family uh, organization. Uh, and he's the boss of all bosses. Little does he know that his boy, Lucky Luciano, is setting him up. And, you know, quickly, about five months later, Blackjack Maranzano realizes that Lucky's a problem. He's probably working behind his back. So he orders Lucky to be killed. Lucky's smart enough, though, to act first. He finds that Maranzano's at his re- uh, offices in Manhattan. He sends Jewish guys because he knows Maranzano won't realize it. He sends them to uh, kill uh, Maranzano. They go in, they stab him and shoot him. And that's that for the old guys. So they're out of the way and Lucky can take over. Yeah. I mean, listen, it was a, a shrewd move, obviously, uh, to, to act first before Maranzano could because Maranzano had to see this coming, right? I mean, Lucky Luciano was a guy who was was very money motivated. He was a guy who wasn't going to take a back seat here. I mean, he orchestrated the killing of Masseria, who was in some ways a mentor to him. Um, so Maranzano certainly wasn't going to get away with it. But, you know, uh, it, it probably did not hurt to have good friends like Meyer Lansky and Bugsy, Bugsy Siegel when you needed those Jewish gangsters. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, the, the, they would call this war the Castamolari War. It would kind of rage in the late 20s, early 30s, and up to 60 men would die. Uh, and obviously the, the climax to this would be Masseria and Maranzano going. But what this would now do is this would create um, not only the modern day mafia, but the commission as well. Uh, and Lucky was the leader of everything. He was the, the boss of all bosses, the capo do tutti capi. And he would create the commission and they would form an alliance where they would all make decisions uh, as one. Um, he would obviously be the prevailing um, opinion, but he would commit to Omerta. They would commit to everything, the structure of the five families. They all had their own family. They would all delegate, um, you know, subordinates. They, they would all kind of work in unison. And the commission was the five families in New York, the Chicago outfit, then Philadelphia and Detroit, as well as Buffalo. And in the Luciano family, which Lucky was the head of, he would delegate power to all of his friends, including Vito Genovese, who would become underboss, Consigliere would be Frank Costello, and his capos were Mike Coppola, who we talked about, Black Chick, in the Salerno episode. He ran Harlem. Uh, Anthony Bender-Strallo, Willie Moretti, and Anthony Carfano would all be capos in the group. Now, you're probably wondering, where Lansky and Siegel. Obviously, they weren't Italians, so they could not be in the family. However, they were both trusted associates of Lucky Luciano. And I always looked at Meyer, obviously, as like the Tom Hagen, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that Meyer Lansky was his... I mean, listen, you can you can say that he had, uh, you know, that Frank Costello was his consigliere, and I'm sure he was in, in name, but I think in Lucky Luciano's life, Meyer Lansky was his consigliere. Exactly. And one of the associates that they had um, that was part of kind of the, the triumvirate that, that was with kind of the, the Jewish group was a guy called Dutch Schultz. Dutch Schultz was a bootlegger, a, a number runner, and he was someone that um, you know, was obviously important in the New York crime scene. Um, he develops an issue in the mid-30s with Thomas Dewey. Now, by this point, Thomas Dewey is 
a prosecutor, he's really coming down hard on the mob and on OC. And Dutch Schultz is getting shaken down hard by Dewey. He gets hit two different times with tax charges. He's getting sick and tired of Tom Dewey. So during a commission meeting, Schultz basically plots and says, look, fuck this guy, Dewey. Let's get rid of him. Let's kill him. That's that. Now, there was a rule that the commission had that we're not going to kill law enforcement. It's just not going to happen. It's bad for business, which, again, it is bad for business. It's a stupid thing to do. Dutch Schultz gets absolutely furious and gets up and leaves. Albert Anastasia, who is a a Luciano ally, goes to Luciano and says, look, he came to me and wants me to kind of lead a hit team, stake this Dewey out. Um, So at that point, it's time for Dutch Schultz to go. He's becoming a problem. We can't have him go off the deep end and kill a fucking, you know, prosecutor for the government. That would just be a death nail to us. Um, so we got to get rid of him. Uh, he's found at a restaurant in Newark, New Jersey. At that point, two individuals in Murder, Inc. called Emmanuel Mendy Weiss and Charlie the Bug Workman uh, enter the establishment and kill um, uh, Dutch Schultz. He would die a day later on October 24th, 1935. Um, so Again, he had to go blackjack. It it just was that simple. He was a mess. He was going to try to take out basically a U.S. attorney. Just can't happen. No, it can't. And Thomas Dewey was a guy with a rising political star. As as many of you know, he would ultimately become governor of New York and run for president uh, with the famous Dewey defeats Truman headline. That's Thomas Dewey. Um, And... Thomas Dewey actually plays a very uh, outsized role in Lucky Luciano's life going forward. Yeah. And it's interesting because obviously at the end of the day, maybe they should have just let Dutch Schultz kill Dewey. Cause <laughs> again, Dewey would become a big problem for, but then ultimately Dewey would kind of be that's, good. That's, to- that's yeah. That it's, it's ironic. The terms that the relationship between Luciano yeah. and Dewey take because Dewey winds up having Luciano incarcerated, but then ultimately is his key to freedom. Yeah, it was kind of a cat and mouse game between the two. A little bit. Um, So Dutch Schultz obviously had to go. He's out of the way. But what this did was by getting rid of Dutch Schultz, it was a blessing and a curse in a way. But it was pretty much a curse because what would happen now is in mid-1935, the governor of New York would appoint Dewey as a special prosecutor of a U.S. attorney to combat organized crime in New York City. It was out of control. And him and his assistant attorney, Eunice Carter, would realize that prostitution would probably be the way to get rid of the high end of the uh, mob at the time, which would include Lucky Luciano. So what they start to do is investigate the money, investigate the, the criminals themselves, and obviously go into the brothels and, and, and kind of gang bust, if you will. What they do during all these raids is they start bringing in madams and hookers and all sorts of people related to the trade and try to start shaking them down and saying, look, if you testify, you know, we won't, uh, we, we won't bother you. Just uh, talk to us about who the upper crust of this group is. The individual that was running the rackets for, the mob or for at least for lucky Luciano was a guy called little Davy Batillo. Davy Batillo was kind of the in charge of the group and 
Luciano was, was coded as the ringleader, um, which interestingly enough, uh, Selwyn Rab actually talked about this years later, the, the great uh, New York Times columnist, Selwyn Rab, he wrote Five Families. In Five Families, which is probably the best mob book ever written, he talks about there was a lot of evidence that Lucky Luciano was not directly really involved with this ever. But I guess what I lend to believe, Blackjack, from the book is it's almost kind of like a Rico charge in a way where he's the leader of it and he's profiting from it. So while he's not directly involved, he's kind of like the kingpin and he's going to go down for it because all the money flows up to him. Yeah. Ultimately, I think he's charged with something that is what we would today, I guess, call sex trafficking, right? Right. He was, he was charged with forced prostitution. So the, the, the charges is, it doesn't matter whether he is directly involved in what's happening. He's involved in getting these women into this, you know, into this organization and doing this by force. So yeah, it's similar to a Rico predicate. I think it, it's, it's also, like I said, akin to what we would call human trafficking today. Right. They call it pandering. Interesting name. Interesting name. Whenever, right. Which is not a charge you hear much anymore. Um, Lucky in early 1936 would obviously realize that they're bearing down on him. He's got to get the fuck out of Dodge. Um, Kind of like uh, Brian Laundrie has done um, in modern day uh, American crime, right? Blackjack, he uh, feels the, the heat and he leaves. Uh, true, except Brian Laundrie is going to be caught by Dr. Bounty Hunter. So, right, true. Uh, in this case, uh, Lucky would travel to Hot Springs, Arkansas, which uh, was a favorite spot for gangsters. It was kind of that uh, you know vacation feel. If you will. it doesn't seem like a vacation spot, but it but it was at the time. Um, eventually, though, he would be caught and extradited back to New York. And in May of 1936, the trial would begin. Um, and look, the case was pretty strong. I mean, they would also expose Lucky for lying and also really for tax evasion, where he would claim he only made about $20,000 a year, but he was obviously very rich. Um, he would be constantly pressed by Dewey on all sorts of different things. He would eventually be convicted on 62 counts of prostitution, uh, and he would be sentenced in June of 36 to 30 to 50 years in state prison alongside his boy, Davey Batillo. So, you know, in a way, it wasn't that massive indictment that I think they wanted, but ultimately it was something that would put Lucky away. It would get him out of the way. The problem was, Blackjack, they would send him to Sing Sing um, and he would still run his criminal organization. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the the page, the government's page out of the Al Capone playbook, right? If you can't get him on the actual criminal activity, get him on the taxes. Um, so they did what they had to do. They got him in there. But as you said, nothing really stopped for him in terms of him running the organization from, from prison in New York state. Exactly. Interestingly enough, when he was, um, sentenced and he went up to Sing Sing, he was actually given a psychiatric evaluation by the state. And there was kind of some interesting things that came out of it. Um, the guy that did the, um, report would talk about Lucania is a shallow parasitic individual who is considerably wrapped up in his own feelings. Um, His social outlook is essentially childish in that it is dominated by recklessness 
and a craving for action. His only asset of a leader consists of his apparent calmness at times of stress, which is actually quite a good asset. This characteristic would appear to have been based on his feeling that he could escape involvement, has passed for reserve and strength. As a consequence, he has accorded a degree of underworld respect. He also manifests a peasant-like faith and chance and developed an attitude of nonchalance. His behavior patterns are essentially instinctive and primitive, his manner easiest and copious and ingratiating. His freedom from conscious springs from his admitted philosophy. I was never a crumb, and if I had to be a crumb, I'd rather be dead. His ideals of life resolve themselves into money to spend on beautiful women, silk underclothes, and places to go in style. Now, it would also be talked about that he would also put one of his conditions of drug addiction, which was interesting because it was talked about that in his early years, in his early, in late uh, teens, early 20s, there was actually proof that Lucky was actually addicted to opium blackjack. A lot of people don't know that, but um, there were some interesting things that came out. Now, a lot of what I heard from the psychiatric evaluation wasn't very surprising. I mean, all I can take from that was he was a pretty good fucking leader. Yeah, I mean, let, let's start by saying one thing. Uh, psychiatric evaluation and care has come a long way since the mid-1930s, right? Uh, at this point, I think this is a very primitive form of the science. Um, and what you just said, I think is right. I heard a lot of those qualities that they elucidated about him, you know, that he was calm under pressure, that he was ingratiating to people that, you know, he had a belief in chance that, you know, things were going to work out. Like, I think those are pretty decent leadership qualities. Right. And he was probably a philander and loved women. It's pretty simple. And silk undergarments, which who doesn't? Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I also found it interesting. I think at one point, um, Lucky on his uh, doctored stuff, like all his uh, medical reports and stuff, he had been diagnosed with chlamydia seven different times. Woo. A lot. <laughs> busy guy. Uh, and it was also said that early in the, the late 1900 or the late in his late teens, I think I heard that he had not going to world war one because he had chlamydia supposedly that was something that i heard as well but um definitely an interesting guy sexually he was always with a lot of women for sure uh during his prison sentence it wouldn't take long though he would go to clinton correctional which is really remote way up in in northern new york um luckily he was with his boy david batillo who uh, was kind of his ears and and did all of his work in prison um, he would make him meals and things of that nature. Um, but Black Chick, in 1942, some things started to go his way. Um, the U.S. Uh, Office of Naval Intelligence were concerned about different agents entering the U.S. through the waterfront. So who do they contact? Lucky Luciano. The mafia yeah. controls the waterfront and the ports. Right. And so what they did is they kind of move him to a soft facility close to New York City and kind of reach a deal. And they say, look, if you help us here uh, with the Navy and kind of get your guys to control the docks and kind of protect us a little bit so we don't have to, to worry about things and so we can invade Sicily, um, you give us some connects, help us out, and we'll, we'll look a good way down the road. Yeah, I mean, listen, his deal with the government during World War II was a, a really fortuitous one for him. Obviously, he was facing a 
incredibly long sentence, which would likely be a life sentence. And the government was at a place where they were desperate. I mean, they, they had issues, right? They had agents coming in from Europe at this point. So you've got Germans, Italians coming in, and they were concerned about that. Obviously, we saw what the U.S. government did with the Japanese on the West Coast uh, out of the same concern. And the other concern was because the Italians and the mafia controlled the ports, there were dock worker strikes going on. So that impacted the war effort, right? Because if you think back to anything you know about World War II, it's that the war effort, we were the government was converting factories into government use and things like that. You know, car factories were making artillery and weapons because we needed all this stuff to get over to Europe. We were fighting a war on two continents. So the fact that Lucky Luciano was not only able to say, hey, listen, we'll keep an eye out for any bad actors, but also we're going to keep your ports open. It was a big deal for the government. Yeah, and they would actually look out for Lucky. Obviously, he got 30 to 50 years, but he only did you know, about you know, a little under 15. He was basically, uh, in a way, paroled, and the condition was he would have to leave the country and go back to his native Italy. And that was kind of, a, again, a gift and a curse because he would be getting out of prison, but he loved the United States. He had been here since he was a young child and, um, you know, it kind of sucked for him, but at least he'd be getting out of jail. In 1946, um, he would be paroled and, and, and have to head on a freighter and go back to Italy. But lucky for him, though, uh, all his men would arrive at the docks and, and give him big fat envelopes. Uh, with tons of cash in it. And uh, he also had a nice little meal with his contemporaries before he would leave. Um, on February 28th, 1946, um, he would arrive in uh, Sicily, or in Italy, I'm sorry, uh, and have to live his life in Italy, never get to come back to the United States. Um, it didn't take long, though. Late that year, he was sick of Italy already and takes a freighter from Naples to Caracas, Venezuela, then a flight to Rio de Janeiro before going to Mexico City, doubling back to Venezuela, and then taking a private plane into Camagüe, which is in Cuba. So it didn't take long, Blackjack, for him to realize, I'm not fucking staying in Naples. I'm out. Uh, I'm going to go to Cuba where I can live in, in kind of solidarity. And look, at the time, Cuba was great. It was run by uh, Batista. It was, it was uh, kind of the Vegas of the Caribbean, right? Yeah, it's important to note this is pre-Castro Cuba. Uh, so, as you said, things were pretty good in Cuba at the time. Uh, so, you know, and it's a hell of a lot closer to the United States. So maybe he can still get his hand involved in some stuff here. Um, but, yeah, he, he goes to Cuba to kind of live live the life at uh, the Hotel Nacional. And that's the thing. I mean, he was still in control of the commission at this time. I mean, for the most part, he obviously had delegated in his own family uh, other people to handle things, but he was still very much powerful. And so in 1946, he decides that I need to speak to everybody um, and to get them down here, I'll put on a Frank Sinatra concert uh, and they'll all come down here. And in secret, we'll have a little bit of a, a co-op and we'll uh, talk about all the things that need to be talked about. Now, obviously they had to talk about the heroin trade and want to talk about gambling and the casinos down in Cuba, but they also had to talk about Bugsy Siegel, who by this point was, um, down in Vegas, and he was putting a ton of money into these hotel projects that weren't making any money. Um, and look, Lansky was trying to turn them out to not kill him, but 
know, Bugsy Siegel was becoming a bit of a problem and they had to kind of deal with what they were going to do. Um, and I don't think they wanted to kill him, but ultimately he was out of control and he had to be killed. Uh, they would also talk about that there, but also I think Lucky was realizing that Vito Genovese, I think was slowly trying to do to him what he did to Maranzano many years before. Um, he wanted to think, take control and make the Luciano crime family into the Genovese family. And I think Lucky and Cuba had to talk him down a little bit and say, look, stay the fuck off of this family. It's my family. Don't do this again, or you're going to have a major problem. And from what I understand, Genovese was beaten in Cuba for this. You're not going to try to overthrow Lucky Luciano. Yeah. I mean, it's an odd strategy if we're being honest. I mean, it sounds like, it's one thing to try to overthrow a guy like this. It's another thing to try to convince him to essentially step down. Uh, yeah, but why not just, if you're, if you're Luciano, like why not just let him be the fucking acting boss and take all the heat? Like, I, I mean, listen, that would be the smart move, Jeff. But I think as we've seen with a lot of these guys, yes, they're powerful. You know, they're not necessarily wired that way. Right. And the problem that Lucky was having is by doing all this fraternizing with, Frank Sinatra and all these other people is he's putting himself on the radar. Obviously uh, the U S government finds out and tells Cuba, look, if if you don't give him up because we have an issue with him, he needs to be in Italy, not Cuba gallivanting around. If if you don't deport him, we're going to shut off certain shipments to Cuba and you're not going to get them. So uh, within 48 hours, uh, Cuba pretty much realized, look, we're not going to fuck around with that get out of here. So they send Lucky on a freighter back to Italy. Now, he would spend most of his life from then on under a ton of surveillance. He was constantly, um, you know, involved with the police watching over him. In 1949, they would arrest Lucky Luciano on suspicion of shipping narcotics to the United States. Um, However, um, they would release him without any charges after they were questioned him. But he was constantly under supervision and they were constantly trying to bring him down. But during all this and during the 50s, Vito Genovese was continuing to build strength and build strength and build strength. And by this point, things were changing. As we know, uh, in 1957, people in Luciano's group, particularly allies that have been with him for a long time, they're starting to be eliminated or out of the way. Obviously, one of them was Frank Costello. Vincent Giganti attempts to kill Costello on orders from Genovese. We obviously know how that turns out. He doesn't kill him, but Costello gets the point and retires. So there's one person out of the way. Luciano can't do anything about it. So slowly but surely, all of his emissaries are being taken out by Vito Genovese. They would also eliminate Albert Anastasia, partly on Carlo Gambino because he wanted to take over that family. But slowly but surely, people that were allies of Luciano Blackjack are being taken out. The problem was people were getting sick of Vito Genovese as well because he was acting like a a nut job. I mean, he's setting meetings. He's having these big meetings in New York and obviously up in Appalachian and people are getting pissed off. Um, And I think Lucky kind of looked at this as a way to Maybe I can do one last power struggle here and and take control one more time. Um, But by this point in the late 50s, Lucky was no longer the most powerful person in the American mob. People had passed him by and he was almost I'm not going to say, but he was a has been at that point. 
he had no control. He wasn't in the country and he was still doing deals. And he obviously was part of the French connection stuff in Sicily. But at that point he made his last stand. And this is where, again, he, you know, kind of cooperates in a way Uh, he allegedly pays a drug dealer to implicate Vito Genovese in a drug deal. And in 1959, Genovese is convicted of narcotics and sentenced to 15 years. So that was kind of the way that he had that one last dish effort, lucky to take control of the family again. But by the early sixties, he had kind of become a has-been and the American Close and Ocean passed him by a little bit. I mean, significantly at this point, right? I mean, you, you, first of all, there's no argument that Carlo Gambino is, is significantly passed him by. And as you said, Jeff, He'd been out of the country for, you know, over a decade at this point. You know, he just wasn't a player anymore. I mean, he was still around tangentially, you know, in people would talk about him and, you know, he would have his hand in things here or there. But, I mean, the guy just wasn't a player. It's hard to, to stay that powerful when you're not involved. And it's funny, though, because when Lucky was in Italy, he really could never give up not having power so much to the point that he was constantly trying to figure out ways that he could still stay in the game. Like, you know, it's passed me by, but I can't leave it. And he would buy a candy company where he would make um, this Italian candy called confetti. Now, for Lucky, it was really just a front. It was a, a way that he could s- send heroin to the United States. And the government was so worried about him. They actually, at one point, raided his candy company and smashed 60 crates of confetti because they believed that the confetti was a front for heroin. No, it was, but they would waste a lot of time because Lucky was too smart and he knew that they were onto him. So he would create other ways to send the heroin. But at that point, Lucky would be exiled from Rome and he'd go down to Naples. Um, now, during this time, as he's kind of giving up or, or trying to you know, still be a part of the Cosa Nostra, he's still sad that he can't return to the United States. And I think he started to get a little homesick in a way. And he was homesick. He missed the United States. Um, he would talk years later about, you know, he would go to this place called the California. It was a restaurant in Naples. And it would be a place where Americans would kind of congregate. And he would immerse himself and talk with GIs and tourists and different people. And there was one story, Blackjack, I heard um, Mark Lawrence. He actually was an actor. He played Carlo Gambino in the Gotti film. You know who I'm talking about? Yep. Yep. So he was a guy that would go to Italy a lot. He would go over to Naples and he actually was a friend of Lucky Luciano's. He talked about one instance where when he met Lucky late in his life, him and his wife were at a table having dinner and, who comes up to him but Lucky Luciano? And he goes, hey, he goes, you're from New York? He goes, can you do a favor for me? He goes, can you just talk to me in your your accent? He goes, I miss hearing it. And they developed like a nice friendship. And Lucky would sit there all day and he'd have meals and he would sign autographs. He was just kind of a a favorite. All these GIs were coming over there and they couldn't believe it because they knew who Lucky was obviously during World War One or, or, or I'm sorry, World War Two, and kind of what he did for America. And yeah, I think ultimately Black is kind of a shame that look, while Lucky was a gangster, he did do a lot for America. It's kind of shitty that he had to like live out his life in Italy because he, he clearly missed America. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, for whatever 
criminal acts he committed, which certainly were numerous, uh, he did help the United States government during what was the most stressed period this country's ever endured, which was World War II. Um, you know, as we're fighting a war on two fronts here and Europe is really in danger, you know, Lucky Luciano was a, a significant aide. And, and ultimately, that's how we talked about Thomas Dewey. Thomas Dewey's the guy that locked him up, but Thomas Dewey's also the guy that stood in front of a judge and said, yes, he was of substantial aid to the war effort. Yeah, and interestingly enough, you know, one of the things about Lucky that's pretty interesting is he did not have a wife. He was never married, never had any kids. He was kind of a Corrado Soprano, right? He, he never <laughs> married. A little bit. Um, but he did have some serious relationships. Um, he would fall in love with uh, a, a beautiful Italian dancer uh, called Igia Lassoni, who um, they fell in love. They would live together. He was his, uh, basically his bride for, for many years. Um, she was kind of the center of his life. They lived in a 60-room home in Naples, a beautiful palatial estate. Um, and she was someone that he cared about a lot. Um, he could not get married, but, you know, he kind of had her as his longtime girlfriend. Um, she would actually pass away though, uh, kind of right before he did in 1959 from breast cancer. Um, that was the only woman he really loved. Lucky Luciano would say that one of the reasons that he never had children was quote, I didn't want any son of mine to go through life as the son of Luciano, the gangster. That's one thing I still hate Dewey for making me a gangster in the eyes of the world. Uh, so he hated on Dewey, but look, ultimately he did it to himself, um, frankly, but I get that. That's actually a fair thing to say. Like, I think it's actually kind of, um, kind of interesting Blackjack, that he was smart enough to realize, like, I don't want no kid growing up with me as his father. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's a really interesting level of self insight, right? Like that you, are able to look at yourself and see yourself that way and know what it would do to a child. So I, I think that takes, I think that takes an incredible level of insight to be able to do that. I don't think a lot of people are capable of that, particularly people that are involved in that kind of life. By 1962, Luciano was um, 65 years old. So he's still fairly young, but he was developing some um, you know, medical issues. Um, but by this point, he, I think kind of had decided, you know what? Um, I like the fame. I like these people coming up to me. Uh, I'm going to make a movie about my life, which was quickly um, talked down to by other mob members. And they kind of said, look, that's not going to happen. But Lucky had gone to meet an American producer called Martin Ghosh about a film. Um, right after the meeting at Naples, he would have a heart attack and die. Um, interestingly enough, the, the Italian drug organizations, the cops were actually looking to arrest him after they thought he was bringing in uh, more drugs, but that wasn't true. Uh, he would die on January 26th, 1962. Uh, a few days later, they would have a funeral service for him in Naples. Um, and he would have a horse-drawn black hearse in the streets of Naples. Uh, eventually, his body would be sent back to the United States where they would have a funeral. Over 2,000 people attended his funeral. And his longtime friend, Carlo Gambino, would give his eulogy that would have been a fascinating eulogy to hear oh, yeah I mean, that's crazy for gambino to give a eulogy that's wild yeah. it doesn't seem like anything he would ever do no but you know they were they were very close yeah he surely was 
1998, Time Magazine would call Lucky Luciano a criminal mastermind and among the top 20 most influential builders and titans of the 20th century. And I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, Lucky Luciano was a visionary. He really, I think, should be credited, for, if surely, for the creation of the modern American mob. Before Lucky, with all the different families, there really was no structure. We talked about it with Capone. It was a bunch of gangs, frankly. There was some foundation of an American mob, but there was no structure. Lucky created the structure. He took the commission and threw it all together, and it worked. When you look back at his control, the American mob in New York City controlled everything just like it did in the 80s, just like it did in the 70s, all that. They controlled everything. He was a very wealthy man. He made a ton of money. And look, did he do prison time? Yes. And look, I think when we look back, Blackjack, on Lucky Luciano's life, I think it was good, but it wasn't great. He lived a lot of it in places he didn't want to be in. Um, and we, as we said, it's kind of shitty that he did all this for the government and they still made him go, but... Um, that prostitution charge, which maybe we can look back and say, was it a little bullshit? Yeah, but this was kind of the infancy stages almost of kind of something that resembles Rico because he made money off of it and they kind of took him out as being the, the lone leader of everything. But you cannot talk about the mob without talking about Lucky Luciana. He was surely a visionary and the American mob was literally created because of him. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you if you were to describe Lucky Luciano in one sentence, Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And look, at the end of the day, he's a legend. Against him uh, with this this pandering charge, uh, this forced prostitution issue. Uh, so that is not a surprise that they kind of did him a little dirty and made him leave the country after he helped them with the war effort. But, you know, you have to consider the time there too, Jeff, right? I mean, this is the era of the gangbusters and the FBI is gaining power and things like that. And Thomas Dewey was looking to make a name for himself. He ultimately became governor and almost became president of the United States. So um, there were a lot of factors at play. I think you hit the nail on the head that for as much influence and as important as Lucky Luciano is, he spent a lot of his life in, in, in prison, spent a lot of his life in exile. Um, and it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a bittersweet tale for him. One thing can be said, though, in his later life, there, there's many instances where he was very good to the, the community in Italy. He was constantly talked about as helping the, the people of Italy, the people of Naples, the children of Naples. Um, and look, ultimately, he died, you know, outside of prison. Um, he died a pretty rich man. But you know, it's interesting. He never had any lineage. You never had any kids, has no relatives uh, of, of living for as far as I know. Um, it, it's interesting for sure, but ultimately a guy that uh, exactly was a criminal mastermind and a Titan for sure. Uh, and is the face in my opinion, surely of the American mob. It's that simple. Um, a show that was a must that we had to do next week. We will do his best friend, Meyer Lansky, a little back to back two Titan shows. We have to do um, who had a little bit more of an interesting life and a different life, if you will. But 
ultimately did a lot of the same things. But Blackjack, he's got to be number one, Lucky Luciano, for sure. There's no question about it. There, there's, there's a, we, don't, we don't have this podcast or any of these episodes without him. Yeah, you know, and, and as well, um, there's, some, there's some good films about Lucky and, and kind of about people that related to Lucky and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I, I would have loved to have seen, you know, uh, I will say, though, as far as a portrayal of him, you've, have you seen Borok Empire? No, I forget. I have, yeah. You have. So, yeah. I mean, I thought Vincent Piazza was incredible. I thought he did a great job as as uh lucky luciano that was a, i always loved that storyline in baroque empire i wish they would have did more on it but i think it's the best portrayal that's been done of him honestly i when you brought this up just a second ago i i my first thought is i don't know why there hasn't been like a real feature done on him i feel like there'd be an appetite for it you know nowadays yeah i would love to see like like i said I, one of my favorite portrayals of any mobsters in any film or tv or anything was the portrayal of Piazza of Luciano and then the character that played Meyer Lansky that in, in the Borok empire, I wish they would have had a show about just those two and yeah. like kind of a long show about Lucky's life and, you know, make it into like a, 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 a mini series or something. Yeah. I would love that. I think it'd be awesome. Yeah, you definitely could. And I think there's always an appetite for guys like this. Yeah, it'd be fascinating. But there you go. A great show. Um, no Q&As, no news, no nothing. Just straight biography, which people love. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. As I said, next week we will talk Meyer Lansky, uh, the contemporary of Lucky Luciano. Um, we'll have some fun. As always, make sure you check us out on Twitter at the Sitdown 7 uh, also next week, what we'll do is I didn't want to do it today just because, you know, I black chick had to see it and, and I wanted to allow a little bit of time for people to see it as well. Uh, next week, we'll talk a little bit about the Sopranos film and kind of our thoughts overall on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, real quick, I'll just say this. I don't think I heard from any person that said they loved it. I think everyone liked it or understood it or was happy that it happened but i don't think anyone will be looking at it as goodfellas or gaudy or anything like that but i think it sets up another film which we'll talk about next week uh, as always blackjack great stuff thanks for uh joining us as always uh, and being here as our co-host we uh, always like hearing from you uh and thanks all for listening we'll be back next week with another edition of the sit down have a great week we'll see you next week